so those of you who know me know that I'm, I'm big on civility, I'm big on empathy, and I do my best to try to understand the positions uh, of those who I disagree with. You know, when, when I stand up here and provide a variety of theological ap- options, whether it be baptism or the end times, you know, I, I try to represent the strength and weaknesses of all positions fairly. I um, do my best to not construct what are proverbially called straw men, right? representations of opposing views that are standing, but they are just easily toppled with a shove. But what are the limits, are there limits, to civility and empathy? Are there situations where it is okay, perhaps even justified, to go a little overboard and get a bit edgy with how we communicate? Now, the, the way that I see Jesus portray, portrayed, described in the Gospels, I, I don't know that there is a limit to that civility and empathy. Right? We never see him dehumanize his opponents. He does get angry with them a few times, but you could still be angry and civil. He's patient. He speaks to them with compassion. But then I'm confronted with the way Paul portrays himself in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Right, this passage, it's, it's, if you want to start turning there, you're welcome to. It's Philippians chapter 3. It contains some really deep and important theological roots on the nature and the effects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was something that Paul felt very strongly about because what we're going to see is we're going to see him react very strongly to his opponents. He's even going to use some choice and, you know, edgy language. Now, if, if I was to summarize the main point of this passage, it would be this. Our righteousness comes from God by faith. Anyone who attempts to add anything to that gospel of grace showcases that they're an utter rejection of the gospel. Put another way, Paul says that if we tried to add anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. So if you haven't turned already, go ahead and get to Philippians chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read it out of the ESV, Philippians 3, 1 to 11, but feel free to follow along in whatever translation you prefer. Paul says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So verse 1 begins pretty mildly. It's a transition statement. It connects what follows with what preceded it. And notice again, we've seen this a number of times. I think it's 14 times in this letter. There is this language of joy, the attitude of joy that Paul encourages in the saints of Philippi. And this, this joy is not, you know, just, just blatant happiness, toxic positivity in the face of adversity, but that we can have hope that we can be strong and confident in the Lord in the midst of of difficult situations. And this joy, he says, is safe for them. It is a safeguard. It's a word, the word that's used is a word that describes something that is properly secured, that won't slip down, it won't be cast down, right? I, I, I get uh, a notice from Jay Costas to say, hey, make sure your heavy furniture, if you've got kids, that you affix it to the wall that it doesn't get toppled on top of you. It is safe. This joy allows the Philippians to remain attached, affixed to their foundation of faith, that while trials are going to come, the joy of the Lord will strengthen them, to remain free from the cracks and the weaknesses that Paul's witness develop in other places in the church. Now, then in verse 2, he transitions to a new line of reasoning. The ESV reads, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. But I think the translation is a little that translation is a little weaker than what we see in the Greek. Because in the Greek, there's this like staccato, uh, almost consonant rhythm in the consonants, which adds some poetic emphasis to it. One commentator translated it more literally as, beware the curs, beware the criminals, beware the cutters. I'm going to say, this probably would have been offensive in Paul's day. Paul here is resorting to some name-calling. He's calling his his opponent's dogs, a very pejorative uh, title, pejorative call. Uh, He calls them criminals. He uses this language of mutilation of the flesh, and and that's reminiscent of something you find in in his words in Galatians 5.12, where he basically says that he wishes that these false teachers who are preaching that, you know, you have to be circumcised, He says in in Galatians 5.12 that he wishes the knife would slip so that they would castrate themselves. It's a pretty stark language, right? Paul is not pulling any punches. He is going after these opponents with everything that he has. His language reflects the gravity of the situation. Now, as I said at the beginning, I, I still struggle with what would justify incivility, but I think Paul is, he's getting pretty close to it here. I don't know, maybe this language should be understood more along the lines of what we see from John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 7, coincidentally Luke 3, 7 as well. The Pharisees and Sadducees have come out to see what this guy's doing, and John responds, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Still, we got some strong language, some name-calling, but and I still feel like it's a little milder than what we see here in Philippians. The reason that Paul is so 
strong in his language is that he compares in, in the rest of this section this contrast between true circumcision and false circumcision. False circumcision, he argues, is being spread by these false teachers uh, that elsewhere the Bible calls them Judaizers. And the concern is that these Judaizers might come to the city of Philippi, might infiltrate the ranks, lead some of these Christians astray as they did in Galatia. Paul's trying to proactively warn them of this false teaching. Basically, the Judaizers taught that in order to be saved, you had to accept the full burden of the Mosaic law, the Jewish law, alongside of faith. In other words, if you were a Gentile, someone who was born not Jewish, in order to be saved, you had to fully be, you had to have faith in Jesus, but also fully become Jews, observe all of the commands, all the regulations of the Jewish people. Right, this conflict, this was the first really deep church conflict that we see in Scripture. This is what brought, caused the first church council to come together in Acts chapter 15. To Paul, this was important, especially remembering his audience in Philippi is predominantly Gentile believers. Paul didn't want them burdened with all these extra expectations that are not supposed to be part of the life of faith. This position from the Judaizers was based upon the need for the believers to be circumcised, right? Circumcision, this defining external mark that set apart Jewish people from other people, physically setting them apart from their neighbors. It was a symbol, one of the earliest symbols, Genesis 15, 17, you see this, as their inclusion as God's people. Paul says that is false circumcision. He contrasts it with what he calls the true circumcision, In verse 3, notice he uses the first-person plural, we. We are the true circumcision. This includes Paul, who has been physically circumcised, but also the Philippians, uncircumcised Gentiles. Because Paul's saying the mark in and of itself is irrelevant. It's a symbol, but it doesn't guarantee a deeper commitment to God. He would argue Israel put too much confidence in that mark. There were plenty of examples where there were lots of circumcised Hebrew people straying from Yahweh to pursue their other gods. The Bible even says in, in, in 1 Samuel that God's focus is less on the outward physical marks and more on the inward heart. Now, Paul lists three characteristics of these true circumcision. He says, we worship in the Spirit. And this is important because in the book of Acts, this presence of the Holy Spirit was the occurrence that helped to validate those Gentiles. It legitimized the faith of the Gentile Christians to their Jewish brothers and sisters. They've evidently got the Holy Spirit, and so who are we to stand in the way? Second, he says, we glory in Christ, and finally, that we put no confidence in the flesh. And those last two go together. In other words, that we are putting our confidence in Christ and not in the flesh. Paul would argue that those two things are mutually exclusive. If you're putting too much confidence in the flesh, then it means that you are not trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul talks about this language of flesh, he doesn't mean our sinful tendencies. He did not view his flesh as evil. Yes, it was fallen, it was marred, it was broken, but because it was a creation of God, it wasn't sinful in and of itself. 
Paul's not a Gnostic, right? That was a faction of that time in the early church. And they tried to create this dichotomy, this dualism between everything that was spiritual was good, but anything that was tangible, physical, earthly was considered bad or evil. And I think we, we have similar struggles today where we, we would legitimize these activities that we would call as sacred, things like prayer or reading your Bible, going to church. And we diminish everything else as secular, as somehow lesser. You know, as if like work, you know, you're going to go be a computer programmer or, you know, go work in the lab as if that is somehow a necessary evil so that you are free to the good to worship and enjoy God. I think all of life to some matter is sacred. Christian ministry can be seen in all walks of life. We, we periodically have this little segment this time tomorrow that tries to highlight the Christian callings of, of our work to glory, for the glory of God in this kingdom. Anyway, I digress. The, the point here is that the flesh is not inherently evil. And so Paul continues, second half of verse 4 and following, he says that if anyone, anyone out there could put confidence in his flesh, these tangible goods that people bring to the table, that Paul was the best man for the job. And he goes on to describe two different layers, two different types of privilege that he received. The first was the privilege of birth, and the second is the privilege that he worked for, that he obtained. And so first were things that he, he had no control over, He was born a member of God's people as an Israelite. He was circumcised according to God's law, a decision that he didn't make, but his parents made on his behalf. Born into the Hebrew tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that was proud that it had brought Israel its first king. He was taught the language at an early age, being able to speak the language of God's people. And remember, this is centuries after the Hebrew people had been exiled from their land. Not all of them had returned to Israel. Many Jews were spread across the Roman Empire and had taken up the Greek language, right? All of these things are privileges or benefits that he received that were not his own doing, but he was just in the right place at the right time. But then he continues with accolades that he attained for himself. He was a Pharisee, one of the religious elites of the time. He was taught by one of the best rabbis in town, Gamaliel. He religiously followed the law down to the letter. He saw himself as a soldier for God, an enforcer of God, persecuting the early church. These are all things that Paul thought made him feel pretty special. We've talked before about this parable. I don't remember who it was, if it was uh, Mike Matthews or Mike Thornhill. One of those two, I think, preached on this parable that Jesus told of a tax collector and a Pharisee going down to the temple to pray. Paul was like that Pharisee. He felt like he was a cut above the rest in society. He had about the best resume possible. His parents had done everything that they could for him, and he had worked tirelessly, diligently to observe the law. If anyone had confidence to say, I'm on the right path for God, it was Paul. But then in verse 7 is where things really start to to go, and Paul really starts to unpack the theology of this. Paul's confidence came from his lineage, his accomplishments. He could look around him and see plenty of people who did not measure up. So he thought, all right, I'm doing okay. I think we do this as well. We so naturally fall into this that we think life is graded on a curve. As long as I'm not the bottom of the barrel, I'm doing okay. I can always find someone who is worse than me. 
the, the only C I ever received in school was my second semester of organic chemistry. I hated that class. I struggled. There was like all kinds of memorization. It did not like, I, I preferred like physical chemistry because it's just plug and chug. It's just algebra. But organic chemistry is lots of memorization. It's all these mechanisms. And every time the exam was put in front of me, I kind of had this moment of panic because I was like, none of this looks familiar. I'm going to do my best. Now, in the end, I received a 46% in that class, and that was enough for a C+. Everything above a 42% was a passing grade. I mean, think, think about this. Those of us in that class with futures in the sciences, I was studying chemical engineering, but we had folks who were pre-med, we had folks who were pre-pharmacy. In order to pass, we only needed to know 42% of the material, right? less than half of it. I was able to eke out a passing grade and continue through my college curriculum. My roommate wasn't so lucky. He had to take the class again. God doesn't grade on a curve. If I am virtuous or noble 46% of the time, that's not enough for me to earn my way into heaven. Right? God's standard as revealed in the scriptures is perfection or bust. And if that is the case, then all of us in this room are a bust. Paul, in light of all of his accomplishments, are saying that they are loss. They are nothing for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Jesus Christ that we can receive this righteousness that we so desperately need in order to be reconciled to God. Just like with my comments with the flesh a few moments ago, when Paul says that everything was a loss, that doesn't mean that, that all of his accomplishments or all his history were inherently worthless or evil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying his attitudes towards those things. When he's putting his, his hope and security and worth in those things, it's out of alignment to the ways of God. In verse 8, he restates his position and then double downs a bit further when he says that he counts all these accolades as rubbish how it's translated in the ESV. NIV calls it garbage. The Greek word here is skubalon. Only time this word appears in the entire New Testament. A closer translation would be that all of Paul's accomplishments were a big steaming pile of poo, literally. I mean, how's that for graphic imagery? I've heard it commented that this word had some extra emphasis in the ancient world implicit in it, so it's more like Paul saying that it was a load of the S word. Last time I preached on this, I said, I'm not going to say it today. Regardless of Paul's colorful language here, the image that's meant to be con, you know, communicated, conveyed, is that when presented with the glory, with the majesty of Jesus Christ, even our best attempts at holiness feels like dung in comparison. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah 64, 6, he says that all of our good deeds, all the righteous things we do are like filthy rags. That gets, that gets a little, um, uh, there's some very graphic imagery in that too, but I'm not going to go down that route, rabbit hole right now. So verse 9 gives us the antidote. Right? Instead of us being justified by our poopy works, trying to follow the law, we receive that righteousness from faith in Jesus Christ. Right, that, that phrase could be also translated, we receive it from the faithfulness of Christ. Paul's saying that in the, the final days, 
He's not clinging to his righteousness. He's not clinging to his obedience, but that righteousness that's provided by God. Now, before we get to application, because I, I think there are a couple things that this has to say to us. I want to I, I point out one thing. Verse 11, because when I first read this, it can come across as a little confusing in the English, because as Paul's looking forward to the resurrection, he sends, says that by any means possible, I might attain it. NIV reads it as somehow I might obtain it. And so expressing it that way makes it sound like Paul is uncertain, like he's unsure, am I going to get this or not, or that it's conditional upon his behavior. But I don't, th- I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think a better understanding of it is that Paul is confident that he's going to experience the resurrection in Christ. But what he is not sure of is precisely how that is going to come to bear for him. Right? Will he ob- obtain it through martyrdom? Is he going to be executed for his faith? Is he going to die a natural death and then be resurrected? Is Jesus going to come back before all of this happens and he encounters it there, right? The question isn't, will I be raised? But closer to, how is it? What mode will that resurrection take place? I just wanted to point that out in case you read that and are like, oh, what does this mean? Does this mean that I shouldn't be confident in the resurrection? No, you should be. So as we turn to apply this to our lives, I want to remind us of the theme for this morning, right? The main point of the passage is that our righteousness comes from God by faith, and that anyone who attempts to add to the gospel of grace showcases their rejection of it. So let's look at this application, two diverging paths. First, how do we handle deviations from the gospel? And second, what is it that we're putting our confidence in? Is it God or is it ourselves? So what do we do if we encounter someone who is proclaiming a gospel other than the gospel of grace. Because we saw in our passage, Paul got all fired up about it, resorting to name-calling, he's dropping cuss words here. How are we to handle deviations from the gospel? Now, the the, the simple or the quick answer to that question is, I don't don't know. Like, I haven't figured this out yet. I'm still struggling with where are, are there limits to civility, to empathy in these types of places, situations. But I do want to give you a couple of diagnostic questions that I, I think are essential to consider if you find yourself engaging in this topic. So the first is this. Is this teaching, or is the teaching, a deviation from the gospel? But Chris... You just said these points were how to handle deviations from the gospel. Let me say it again. Is this teaching a deviation from the gospel? Is it a deviation from Christ alone, through faith alone, for grace alone? Does it try to add something else in order to be truly justified? Tulian, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, uh, titled his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, right? Not Jesus and something, Jesus plus nothing. Now, the reason this is an important diagnostic question is because you need to be sure that your concern is not a deviation from a secondary matter. Doctrines like baptism or the end times or whether or not the miraculous gifts have ceased, Church folk like to have lots of disagreements about those things, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have those disagreements, but none of them are essential to the gospel. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying that you can't continue to debate them, have spirited disagreements, 
But if we're going to channel this passion of Paul that we see here, we better ensure what we're dealing with is a true deviation of the gospel, of the first things, right? Basically heresy and not secondary or even tertiary issues, right? Churches have split over the color of the carpet. You shouldn't be name-calling just because someone thinks that the carpet should be gray and not red. Now, the second focus is this. Check your own motives. Will I profit from drawing this boundary to my advantage? Through the past 2,000 years, unfortunately, churches have not been immune to imbalanced power dynamics that we often see in the world. If you draw a line in the sand that if you have a line in the sand that you want to draw and you find that it's a pretty comfortable place for you to draw that line right there in the sand, I'm going to go out on a limb and say perhaps it's not the boundary line that God wants you to draw. Or if you try to draw this line in the sand and everyone else on your side of that line looks and thinks precisely like you, I'm going to wager you're probably not truly hearing from the Holy Spirit, but instead a spirit of pride or a spirit of selfishness. Now, after going through those those two uh, diagnostic questions, right, that you can say, yes, this is surely a matter of the gospel. No, this is not out of pride or selfishness or control that I'm creating my boundary. Then what? And my third point is I have no idea. I I don't know the answer, unfortunately. I I wish I could just give you a formula for like, this is how you handle this. Um, But I don't know. I mean, the Bible says that there is a time and a place for church discipline, you can, hi- you can go to Matthew chapter 18, which, you know, highlights a process of conflict resolution that might actually end in broken fellowship. Paul highlights a disciplinary process of excommunication with the intent of drawing out repentance and reconciliation from the offending party. Right, there's going to be a time at the end when many come to Jesus and say, hey, Lord, and he says, I have no idea who you are but I can't, I don't, I don't, I haven't figured out the formula for when and how to apply those things. But I'm confident that most times when we encounter conflict in the faith, we break, we will break off our gatekeeping with one of those first two diagnostic questions. Usually, it's a secondary or tertiary issue that we're bickering about in the church, deciding to split over or we're drawing lines that have a tendency to be convenient and comfortable for us that we're benefiting from. So, again, sorry, I don't give you any concrete answers, but there's a, some starting points at least. So my last take home, and, and, and this is one that I want to encourage you to, to think about this week. I want to encourage you to inventory your life. Try to be introspective and try to determine where is it that you are finding your security? What makes you valuable? Normally, we, we put our efforts, things that we do or accomplish, to answer that question. Right? I feel good about myself because I did well on the map testing at school, or because I make a lot of money and provide for my family. You know, <laughs> this was me, right? High school physics. I felt good about myself because I'm always the first one to raise my hand and correctly answer the question in class, so therefore I must be smarter than everyone else giving me value. 
because I read 25 books a year, because my friends always come to me to find out what the trends are in fashion, because I drive an electric vehicle, right? You could see how this could go on and on and on. I want you to think about what are those accomplishments that you think make you a better person than someone else or, or make you pleasing to God? Those are likely the areas that you are building your identity and your value around. I'm not saying those things are worthless. They are not. But in this passage, we saw Paul show all of his accolades, but his worth did not come through those commendations. In fact, in comparison to the perfection and beauty of Jesus, they were trashed to be taken to the garbage dump. We have been given a righteousness that is not our own, that is from the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And this means that, that our value is not conditional upon what we're able to drum up and bring to the table. God loves us in Jesus, full stop. This means that all of your striving cannot add one iota to the affection that God has for you. But you know what? I've got good news because that means that the opposite is also true. There are seasons in our lives where we all go through the opposite. We feel like a screw-up. We feel like we can't do anything right. That nobody loves us. That whatever we touch just seems to crumble before us. So if you feel that way and you feel like I've got nothing to bring to the table, I want to encourage you that God's disposition towards you is not based upon the places where you've erred either. You also are loved by God deeply because of that righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the core of the gospel. We sang that song, Simple Gospel. This is the simple gospel that Paul was so passionate to protect. Our acceptance by God is not based upon the positive things that we do, and it is not hindered by the places where we mess up. God's love for us has been secured through the righteousness given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare to go from this place, I want to make sure that we are not building a righteousness of our own, but are leaning into that righteousness of Jesus that's been gifted to you. So I've got some more questions maybe diagnostic reflection to think about that this week. So first, where, where we started out, what are the limits of civility and empathy? When is it okay, if ever, to dehumanize your opponent because of their stance? And I don't know that I have perfect answers to these things, but we're wrestling through these things together. And again, I'll put these on Facebook and the website. What accomplishment or accolade are you most likely to develop your identity or self of worth from? What makes you feel valuable. Lastly, do you believe that God is fully satisfied in you right now because of the gospel of Christ? Right now. Another way that I like to ask this question is if you imagine God from the clouds looking down upon you, what is the look on his face? Is he impatient, frustrated, angry? If you're in Jesus, it's not any of those. It's only delight. And so if not, if you don't believe that God is fully satisfied in you, delighting over you right now, 
again, because of the gospel, not because of anything we've done, because of the gospel of Christ. If not, what is it that's standing in the way of that? Let's pray, and then we've got one more song that we'll sing together.